like I find that the preamble conversation, I find that's interesting yeah, that's too. Hey, record now. Hey, record now. Hey, I, I, record yeah. Now. It's right. uh, we're recording. So, right. uh, yeah. Uh, Eddie Shiomi, how are you? Hey, I'm good. I'm good, JJ. It's been forever. I know. When was the last time? Weren't you at I... Deutsche Bank or something at some point? Yeah. When I first met you? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's where okay. I was when I was when I did the Coro thing. Right. Um actually before I got into the Coro program, hmm. we um we were consulting with you guys. The Deutsche Bank program, right? Yeah. So the graduate training program, the associate training program. Oh yeah. Um, they wanted to do something different, like where they sent out the the associates in training out into the community-based organizations to do some sort of like consulting work or something like that. Um, I forget what we ended up doing, but yeah, we brought you in. Oh no, we did work with you. We worked with no, you. No, no, we did. I still have PTSD from that. Um, <laughs> it was it was it was not a good cultural fit and that was a that was a huge learning i took later on in my private sector work because first year post mba uh at deutsche bank on the what 10th week of their 12 week orientation or whatever the heck it was something like are that. not ready are not do not have much bandwidth uh to do anything <laughs> you know and it was it was really interesting so uh there, that, that, that yeah i mean we we we, we did these sort of neighborhood uh, immersions. Like we took them out into New York City and gave them some assignments and stuff like that. <clears throat> I felt like though, a lot of them were ready just to hit the trading desks or whatever and get going because, you know, concurrent with that, they're getting talked at by a lot of other people. And they also know that their job security is limited in that they have to perform and the person to their left and their right are going to be, it's a zero sum game. And so a lot of things built on trust weren't working. It was a, yeah. really weird, but um, no, it was good. I mean, we even, I, I learned a lot about the fact that Coro curates a particular type of individual in a certain place in their life. And our trainings are designed for that, but we have to adapt to all different uh, walks of life a, a lot more. And so when I ended up, I, I, you might know, I worked for Andrew Yang at Venture for America, his first uh, social venture. Um, I did I took not, that into account. yeah, I did not know that until I started uh, looking at the pictures that you sent. Yeah, um, yeah. So, but I think uh, you, you, you knew Andrew Yang even before that, right? You guys played basketball yeah, yeah. together? A yeah. Andrew was one of my first friends actually in New York. Um, so. Uh, I, I guess it's long form, so I can go, I can ramble a little bit, right? Um, Absolutely. Ramble on. Yeah, so, yeah. so I, you know, I grew up, I was born and raised in Los Angeles and um, came to New York uh, in my late 20s in 2002. So you literally a, a, about a year after 9-11. And, you know, one of the things that's hard, because I'm Japanese American in terms of my Asian Americanness, um, there's not really Japanese Americans here. <laughs> Like they're Japanese people, like they're they come from Japan or they are restaurateurs or stuff like that. It's not a right. it's not a massive community like in California, and so I missed community service because I it's so easy to do it there. Uh, not to say we I only do Japanese American community stuff, but like I didn't understand it in New York, and so I volunteered for this organization uh, that was running a children or youth stuff or something called NAP, 
national Asian American. It, it's like okay, it's, it's like a, it's like a, yeah, it's like a young professionals uh, Asian group. Yeah. And I showed up at the, this meeting before their their sports day or youth day or something, youth programming. And I just wanted to volunteer and I ended up leaving being in charge of it. Um, <laughs> because it was clearly a not it kind of thing. It's like whoever yeah. <laughs> is, is a fool enough to step up. And I go, I'll do it. I, it's a good opportunity to meet people. And I, I have experience with this stuff back in LA. So I did that. And one of my first main volunteers was Andrew. Andrew at that point, I think was at a, at a, he just quit his law firm job and it was at a, at a startup. Uh, and he was probably, he was probably teaching at Manhattan GMAT as a, as a, as a GMAT professor uh, or GMAT instructor. Okay. And um, so he was also running this nightclub business. Like he was doing all these after party events. That's funny. Uh, yeah. And so he was in charge of the after party for that event. And so I, he was, he started out as my sports volunteer, but then he, you know, ran the after party. And That's I right. Um, I think he talks about it in one of his interviews. I think it's he, he and his brother, I think they were running some. Well, they, that was star giving. That was their startup. It was basically to try to get Hollywood stars to donate money. But Maybe, he, yeah. he had a lot of things in the air. He was, run, yeah. he was, I think at some point he was also part of a health startup, uh, which yeah. failed and that became the origins of Venture for America. Um, mm -hmm. And his brother is in health. You know, he's an NYU professor now, a tenured NYU professor uh, in healthcare, health something I, I, policy. But I think it was him and Brian Yang. Uh, Brian Yang is the producer of Linsanity. He's a big sort of Asian producer. Uh, he did Chloe Kim's documentary. He's he's doing. He did Andrew's. Um, currently, is doing his documentary. I guess he's mm. been shadowing him since the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, so he and Andrew definitely were involved in that um, when he when Brian was living here. Yeah, I don't know, but I, I I basically knew him briefly there. And then a year later, I ran into him on the street. He was leaving this event and I was coming and then we talked and I go, you look familiar. And then long story short, he invited me to his basketball run, uh, which he did regularly with his friends. Okay. Who, yeah, and I was doing that for about 15 years. I saw him every weekend and we were social, yeah. So. Yeah, I remember when we when you were at Coro and when I knew you back back in the day, uh, you were talking about that how like on the weekends you you uh, play basketball with a bunch of Wall Street types. Yeah, that was that was Andrew's <laughs> run. I, I don't know. Yeah, they were Wall Street types. Yeah, they they all became the Venture for America board. So you know, people working in you know private equity or yeah stuff like that. Um, I was a bit different. I was a nonprofit guy, but uh, it was a good run. I, I enjoyed it. Like in the summers we'd play at this playground across, uh, outside of his apartment in Hell's Kitchen and got to know a lot of people that were uh, still my friends today. Um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, it goes way back with him, as I mentioned uh, in sort of a narrative I, I summarize for you. Yeah. Did you, did you know at that time that, you know, had any inkling that he might ever run for a public office. Yeah, no, I, no, no. he probably didn't even know either. Yeah. No, he didn't even know Adventure for America, I don't think. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, look, I, I know Andrew really well. Uh, I was at his bachelor party, he was at my wedding, I was at his, um, I believe actually I might've been with him on his first date with his wife. It's, it's a longer <laughs> story. I, I, I think we were, it's like a group. Oh, it's, it's a group a, it's thing. A okay. Yeah, we were all hanging out and he said, I'm going to meet this person. And it, it, it was like a group of guys and girls. It's weird. But um, I know, no, I know Evelyn really well. And 
stuff like that. But uh, yeah, he, he I, I'm almost positive he didn't think he was going to run for office because, you know, at that point, I think he just wanted to, um, you know, put a stake in the ground and, 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 and ensure in his financial future. Right. And so mm -hmm. he, you know, when he exited, when he sold, helped sell um, Manhattan GMAT to Washington Post Kaplan, you know, he, he had a, he had his nest egg or whatever, and that gave him the freedom to then do Venture for America, which is the passion project. Yeah. Uh -huh. and, oh, so uh, even was, his, even his GMAT thing was a business that he was running. So it wasn't like, oh yeah. Oh, okay. No, he didn't have a passion for test prep, I don't think. I, yeah. I, okay. Yeah. So yeah. he's, he's, yeah, he seems like almost everything except for his stint in law, in a law firm, uh, everything he does seems very entrepreneurial, you know? Did you? I guess. Yeah. Um, I mean, at least it comes across that way. He, I mean, he's a very creative person. Like he, he's very good at synthesizing a lot of different things happening at the same time. So, you know, at the time when I was playing basketball with him, I just, I didn't even know what he did. I mean, when you play pickup basketball with guys, you don't know what they do. You just know them for their game. Like, you know, oh yeah, Andrew has that good jump shot from the corner, right? Or <laughs> Pat is good at posting up. And, you know, I got insights into what he did when I went to parties at his place, you know, like, you know, all the people, oh, who are all these people? They all seem to be taking the GMAT right now, right? And I'm just kind of like, what's going on? Oh, yeah, well, you're, 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 uh, you work for them, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, after he sold his company, he had this, I think he invited a lot of people out for a celebration. I, I just can't remember exactly. Um, and then he actually came to a Coro event, a selection day. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and he always would mention to me, wow, I really, I really like what you're doing with the fellows program. I think it's such a great program and great thing. And then that was part of, because he was thinking about venture for America and the model it would take and realized it had to be a nonprofit fellowship model, not a private entity. So. I see. Yeah. 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 Wow. Uh, pretty cool. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. You know what I'm finding as I'm doing having these one-on-one -on -one conversations on my podcast what I'm finding is like everyone I know has such interesting stories I mean you know I kind of I kind of have an inkling and uh, and the people that I talk to I know them you know I knew them at some point and we sort of you know loosely kept in touch or I know them very well and so um, I know some things about their lives and and that's why I approach them but uh, once you because, you know, these three hour long one on one conversations is not something that you have on a day to day basis. Like even if I see you every day, like yeah. let's say we were co-workers, like we yeah. would have chit chat, but yep. we wouldn't sit down for three hours and talk about, you know, uh, no. anything in particular. And so, no. yeah. So when you start having even with people that I know very well, when I start having these conversations, it's like there there's so uh, so much under the surface. You know sure yeah well lo long form in general is disappearing and it's funny while i was programming i was vp adventure for america um i was i was in charge of learning content for the fellows and what i realized what we realized is like particularly in the startup world people get information in the moment and that's practical it's like yeah. short articles they google they look up something and what we try to do which i thought was actually a really good idea is because we're trying to train the entrepreneurs we needed them to absorb long form data. So like books, like yeah. crossing the chasm or innovators dilemma, you know, that kind of stuff, which like at first seems like, ugh, it's a book, what? 
but it's so much richer. It's like, even, even the fellows appreciate it. They were like, wow, this was really great. Uh, I, you know, I don't get this from a Seth Godin post or a Fred Wilson post, you know, it's like, it's like right. a true epic narrative. And I think that's what you're doing here, JJ. So I appreciate that. Yeah. And I think, um, um, I think in, in some ways, I think it has sort of eroded this long form conversation, you know, type things, but in some ways I think it's coming back. Um, cause I think, I think there, I mean, there are plenty of podcasts out there where it is long form. Uh, I think though most of it is maybe, uh, driven by specific topics though. Sure. So, um, the only, the only one that I know that I listen to on a regular basis where it is just plainly long form and just conversational is Joe Rogan's podcast. Yeah, sure. um, Yeah. Uh, other than that, the other ones that I listen to, they're more topical. They're either political or news driven or topic driven. So they kind of delve into- Well, Joe, Joe's topic kind of driven. Well, he's, um, he's driven by the person. I mean, I, I listen to Bill Simmons. I mean, that's more, it's sports, but it's pop culture and he goes yeah. all over the place too, you know? So yeah. it's like- yeah. That, yeah. that is true, actually. Yeah. So even yeah. if it does have an umbrella of a particular uh, topic. Yeah. So when you in invariably, when you talk to someone for hours, like, you know, it but you got you to gotta like the person you're talking to. I think ultimately that's what it is. Like Joe's popular because they like him and Bill, yeah. they like him and whatever he wants to talk about, they're drawn into it. Like, I didn't think I'd be into like, like, like sports betting. You know, I mean, that, that, <laughs> yeah, Jill Simmons talks a lot about like, you know, like uh, advanced betting and stuff. I'm like, okay, I still don't bet, but you know, it's a thread that runs through everything. And so he talks I about see. parlays and like, you know, whatever, all these like things I've never even thought I would be interested in. And, you know, Joe's got his thing too. Uh, oh yeah. He, yeah. he gives me an entry into, I would say more politically conservative viewpoints and people. I, I generally don't, uh, I wouldn't be interacting, you know, so. You mean he himself or his guests? Yes, his guests. Yes. Um, and, and I, to some I, degree himself too, honestly, but mostly his guests uh, are ones that would normally not be folks I think I would run into on a daily basis. Um, I think, I think though, uh, overall, uh, I think they are politically liberal, but maybe socially more conservative. Um, overall. Yeah. Yeah. Does that make them conservative though? Wait. Well, <laughs> like, but yeah. that's the thing. I think, I think there's a lot of uh, conflation going on in, in yeah. our society. It, you know, we yeah. conflate religion with, you know, different things and politics no, with true. different things. That's true. And, and, and now like everything is so politicized. Like you can't have a conversation about, you know, about something that's going on in, in the world without it being political. And oh, and yeah. also being affiliated with particular political camps, and well, I, I mean, I, just the fact that I even know Joe Rogan or mention it, I can't mention it to some friends because they immediately put me in a box. It's really weird. I mean, it's like, like I, Alex Jones or something. It's like, what? Wait, he's he's actually pretty on the middle in some ways. You know, um, he's yeah. not. So yeah, even even so, even revealing your media and who you listen to is already you're while well, you're already in with them. You can't even listen to different points of view because you're already like you know, it's crazy. Right. And I think I think that's sad. I think that's a sad statement that we say about ourselves that we can't even say like, hey, I you know like listen to a Joe Rogan podcast. You know, like what? <laughs> what? 
who are you? It's not Amy Goodman. It's not, you know, NPR only. It's, it's uh, yeah. I mean, I, I actually weirdly prided myself in LA because LA, people, people don't understand about Los Angeles is you're in your car a lot still. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you can't watch a video while you're driving. So you have to listen to radio. So radio is much more of a thing in LA. And I always wanted to listen to this, this talk show that, that I didn't realize until later was a conservative talk show, a conservative huh. channel. Uh-huh. It had a whole lineup of people like Dennis Prager and uh, oh God, I forgot the other people. Um, well, is it Prager U? Did it become Prager U or something? Well, he, he developed, he franchised all these things, but I okay. always appreciated yeah. Dennis. Dennis is like a conservative Jewish guy, um, very particular notions, but the way he articulated his thinking was so clear that even though I may have disagreed with certain things, I was like, wow, that really actually makes a lot of sense. Right, yeah. right. And I, there's value in that, you know, when, totally. when a thought is well articulated, well thought through, and, you know, logically, it makes sense, even though you may disagree with mm-hmm. either the presupposition or the conclusion, um, or something in between, that totally. you can appreciate uh, the thoughts itself, rather than uh, just uh, condemning, like throwing out the yeah. bath with a with baby with a bathwater, whatever with the, the expression bath is. <laughs> well, I mean, this is very in line with my whole training with Coro. I mean, mm-hmm. Coro is about, it was designed to ensure that diverse viewpoints right. were, were listened to and how and trained you how to listen to them rather than you're listening through your lens, but like trying to be open, you know, there's, there's like, there's a lot of dimensions to listening. So um, it was just normal for me. So I was listening to a guy who, uh, you know, didn't believe in affirmative action, uh, thought thought the world should be race blind, you know. Um, there were these like opinions that were much, not quite where I was aligned for me. I, you know, at first my lens was, okay, this is a privileged white dude talking about how the world should be. But, you know, I said, I could, but let me pause a moment, think about this, right? Uh, I think he really won me over when he just, and this was way before it was fashionable, when he condemned the, uh, he called it the, he called it the university industrial complex where he thought like higher education was a complete like yes like not scam but like like why are we paying so much and putting people in debt forever uh in service of an education that's marginally beneficial for when you graduate like you know and unless you're going to be an academic it doesn't necessarily work out for you so we're, we're in you know and so i was like wow that is a great argument it was it's rooted in fiscal conservancy but I get it. I'm like, you know, maybe it was condemning the liberal bias of, of, of colleges, but I, I totally lived that experience. Like, you know, colleges are insanely expensive. For, it's ridiculous. And, yeah. 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 You know, what is, what is, uh, what is Princeton? I mean, not most people go to Princeton, but like, what is Penn now? It's like 70, 75,000 tuition base, just tuition. Right. I like, don't know. Yeah. Like, like, you know, my, my dad, my dad, my, my siblings, my uncles, my aunts, all went to UCLA. When my dad went to UCLA in like 1960s or 70, it was free. It was free for like 20 years after that. Because it was a state college, state university. Yes, but yes. it was a good college. It was like really good. It's now yes. the number one public school in the country, weirdly. I don't know how that happens, but yeah. Um, and yeah, you know, back in the day, uh, New York City University system, the CUNY system. CUNY systems City, were great. Yeah. Was, was also very good. And yeah. I think up until the 70s, it was free. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah. NYU was not great. And now it's like a top university. It's probably how they do the algorithm in US News and World Report. It's probably, um, they own a lot of real estate and stuff like that. But NYU is uh, private though. No, I know, but like oh, okay. how colleges rise and fall, it's just weird, you know? I don't understand yeah. that. Um, yeah. All I know is when I, my entire college education tuition was $12,000 total for four years, you know? based on the registration fees and whatnot that that oh I had to pay. all four yeah. years total all the entire college education experience was yeah. twelve thousand dollars that's not you know? bad that's incredible right yeah, that's, that's affordable that is for affordable a family yeah yes. now it's twelve thousand dollars a year which is still remarkably affordable weirdly but that's yeah. now you're getting to a price point that's a little hot but back then my dad my dad paid nothing he paid a hundred dollars for like a just a registration fee for the year and that, yeah. that was affordable. That was a college education that was affordable. And now it's like, you know, you know, it's $80,000 just to, just to pay tuition, forget about room and board and all these other expenses. Um, but I, I agreed with Dennis on that. Um, and I became more open to sort of trying to understand folks who on the surface have, are very from different walks of life, different people and see if they have a point because that's what's important here, right? It's like, well, do, do people have a point Mm -hmm. not the entirety of the person uh you shouldn't just listen to what one person believes on everything you should listen to their points and decide which points you agree with right i mean exactly and and the thing is just because you disagree on one point does not mean that the entire person is somehow now no longer valid <laughs> like they no longer have yeah. anything redeeming to say just because you disagree on one particular thing. And it, it may be on an issue where it's, you know, make or break for you. Like, you know, like, like if this person could not, I could not see eye to eye with this person on this particular point, I really can't see how we can get along. Even, even if you get to that point, but it's a whole person. They have other thoughts and other opinions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm not going to dismiss someone because they eat at McDonald's or something or believe in, you know. Taco Bell food. maybe, but not McDonald's. Yeah. No, <laughs> just but, kidding. But, but, you know, if someone literally thinks that, you know, you know, it is has white supremacist views, let's say, you know, just I think all minorities shouldn't even be in this country and they're, you know, subhuman or something but, like that. then, then but you're, you know you're gonna have complications yeah you're gonna have complications but i would i would almost guarantee that even a person like that if you were able to get them into a room where you're having one-on-one -on -one conversation real conversation and mm -hmm. figure and find out where they're really coming from where this their philosophy and their thinking is coming from then you at least get a better understanding that maybe this person is not a monster maybe he was brought up a certain way or or starts from a false notion or something or maybe a past yeah, no, traumatic well, experience or something something well, is making this person believe this thing well the, the 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 trick is to even be able to have a conversation with someone sure. who has those beliefs because they wouldn't have a conversation with you right I and mean, that's the whole trick of coro as much as we want to feel we're diverse we're not thinking about the people who don't even dialogue or think that's an important way, mode of interaction, you know, because yeah. if you can even have a conversation with them, that's the victory, in my opinion. Yeah, right? that's uh, true. The problem is even getting them to like acknowledge you or come and have like, like this, be on a podcast and talk long form about issues with you because that person's already open. 
in my opinion. Yes, that is true. Because everyone who comes on are sort of self-selected. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, the fact that you've, you know, uh, accepted my invitation says that you're open to a dialogue. Well, I don't know how many invitations you throw out, JJ. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I'm totally, Um, uh, yeah. Oh, how many people I've invited? Yeah. Only one person said no, and it wasn't a no. It was more like, not now, I, you know, you know. Oh, yeah, okay. And I think, um, yeah, so so this is kind of interesting. So when I when I decided to do this, um, so I had been sort of mulling over this for for uh, for quite a while for mm-hmm. um, not the con- idea of doing hosting a podcast. Yes. Um, yeah, I'd love to know that. Yeah, what was how did this happen? So um, yeah, I, and I. As I said uh, in a previous conversation with you, that I've always lo- loved and enjoyed long-form conversation. I, I would much rather sit down with someone, and this goes back to when I was a child. I'd much rather sit down with a friend and just talk for hours as opposed to going to a party and having chit-chats. Sure. I, I hate chit-chats. <laughs> and, um, but uh, anyway. So, so it, I think it sort of starts from there, and then, um, and then I think um, where it sort of became more concrete is when this is I don't know '80s or '90s or something. I started I I was watching a lot of PBS, and then I came mm-hmm. across the Charlie Rose Show. Oh yeah, uh, of course. And long form um, interview. Yeah, long form interview. Unfortunate me to pivot on his career, but okay. Sure. Yes. All that aside, you know, (laughs) whatever. But I I still think, I mean, it's it's a sad turn, but um, I mean, that doesn't discount the his work that he did. Of course, sure. And um yeah, and I noticed that the way he um, conducted his interview was very different from all the other talk shows that I, I've watched so far. Um, how he really um, let his guests talk. <laughs> he didn't have it. Didn't his questions didn't seem like they had a particular agenda that he really want just wanted to get that person's uh, point of view. Mm. Um, I also noticed a difference in demeanor uh, in the guests. Like they were very relaxed and yeah. themselves. Um, and I, I noticed this in particular when he interviewed uh, celebrities, like you know, pop stars and you know, and actors. That you know, they weren't performing. Like you could tell, like you were actually talking to the person and not the performer. Sure. Uh, so it starts from there, and then you know. So, um, so the love of this this form, uh, I think, really sort of solidified then. And then, you know, uh, fast forward when I came across Joe Rogan's podcast, and so that just kind of also solidified. I get it. So, so that, uh, in terms of the art form, that's kind of like how it evolved. Uh, in terms of me putting myself out there as the podcast host, I think this kind of um, came across, I don't know how many years ago, but I noticed that, um, uh, you know, whether it's radio or TV, uh, the louder voices were people on the extremes. Yeah. That people, reasonable, normal (laughs) people with, you know, 
from everyday background, from diverse backgrounds, diverse opinions. Um, mm -hmm. It's just kind of wasn't there. And so sure. I always felt like, you know, hey, there should be someone who's like normal talking about politics, talking about religion, talking about, you know, different issues uh, rather than these like pundits on either extreme well, side of things. There's a reason though, right? I mean, yes, it's I marketing. Know. Yeah, yes, it, it just gets ratings. You know, it's like when you put the sensational like headline or image on a YouTube video and it just gets more views. It's unfortunately people are seduced into that space to uh, promote themselves. And that's why, you know, Joe Rogan versus John Smith, who didn't do that. You know, he doesn't exist, you know, so. I don't know if Joe Rogan, I think the fact that he was an established comedian and actor oh, to well, begin with, I think that, too, yeah. yeah, that helped. But yeah. I don't, I don't see him as controversial. I think um, the, certain segments of the public view him as controversial. Well, I'm just I'm just saying he's he understands even intuitively the art of marketing himself, whether he knows it or not, because oh, there's sure. probably plenty of people who would love to have conversations. They just really don't they, they don't want to be seen or heard. They don't know how to put put it out, create a public persona or all the things that you have to do. I mean, even yourself, you figure it out. You know how to get yourself on Stitcher. I, I'm not sure if you're on other what other platforms you're on, but um, um, I'm on most, yeah. But yeah, and, yeah. yeah. But uh, you know, it's it's something to take for granted. Like you are already in that space, and there's a lot of other people who I have conversations with that you know they just don't have the wherewithal to do that. So that's what I mean. I don't I don't even mean his political uh, view. Okay, it's just more. Yeah. Yeah. So so that's sort of where um, um, I think. Mm -hmm. But I always felt like there should be someone who does that, not necessarily me, because I'm not somebody who, put, you know, I, I don't put myself out there in the public. But I think, I think, I don't actually. <laughs> oh, yeah. well, you've got a nice, what do you got, like 10 interviews already? That's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, um, I know, you know, you know. You're, you're the 16th. So, yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, you're putting yourself out there, JJ. <laughs> I, 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 now I am, yes. But I mean, I, at some point, I mean, obviously at some point I decided, okay, I'm the one who's gonna do this. Um, but um, but yeah, for a long time it was like, well, I wish somebody would do it. <laughs> and at some point, but I think it was like when I started performing um, musically uh, in public, that also kind of like got me more comfortable with putting myself out there. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, through my music, I think it was sort of easier uh, yeah. because it's it, it's another layer that, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but cool. conversation though, it's it's naked. It's it's very naked. Yeah. Yeah. There's no, gotcha. yeah. But anyway, so that's long story. That, so cool. Well, I'm, I'm glad, you, yeah. glad you did it. And, you know, I definitely saw you on social media putting yourself out there, I think a lot more, right? In just terms of your thoughts and feelings. And the fact, I didn't even know you had a podcast until you mentioned it to me on the on the Facebook post after my grandfather's uh, yeah. memorial. So uh, this is cool. No, I'm excited. I'm excited for you. I think, yeah, I hope this really takes off. And everything. I hope so too, because right now I have only 11 subscribers on YouTube, so. <laughs> Well, that's the marketing piece, right? I, I know um, that's the mark. But but I, I was surprised the other day. I wasn't paying attention for you know for a few days and then all of a sudden it went to double digits and like when did that happen? <laughs> so it's a nice surprise. 
Yeah. Rome wasn't built in a day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but anyway, so what were we talking about? Yes, um, having conversations, and yeah. Um, but anyway, so let let's actually start talking about your family. Um, sure. Sure. Yeah. So. Um, the reason why I did reach out to you was because um, your one your grandfather, your maternal grandfather, recently passed away, and uh, you posted a lovely tribute on Facebook. And so I was uh, I actually had to take screenshots because Facebook stories. All the story. Yeah. Oh, you 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 weren't. Oh, you were doing it on your phone, right? You could just hold the screen and it'll pause it, right? You know that. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't see, know that. Yeah, that's why I was like, wait a minute, what are you talking about? And it's like, yeah, you just <laughs> hold the screen and then it won't move. Yeah. So that's why I was like, you know. Because um, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. thank you. Um, see, we're not, we're not young. We're not Gen Zers. We're not digital natives. Um, and you yeah, didn't realize and, that it was only, it, it only goes up for 24 hours. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I, I've never, honestly, I don't, I don't use, okay, the fact that we use Facebook already outs us as older, right? You know that they don't use yes. Facebook as much, it's yeah. right? Um, technically, I think it was on Instagram too, but I don't have a lot of followers on Instagram, so that wasn't gonna have the reach. So I kept it on Facebook and I was fine. I wasn't trying to get likes or anything. And um, I just, I had all this media. I had all this media for all of my family because of my ancestry work, right? And my grandfather was particularly a person, like in, I said in the post, was really not a self-promoter. He was a quiet American. He was literally a guy who, when you talk to him, it'd be like a few grunts and words, and, <laughs> you know. Uh, but he was an artist in his soul. I mean, he uh. was just like a deep person and whatever. And I just wanted to, you know, what I learned from my, my commitment, if you will, of my side passion of, of ancestry uh, is that, you know, like, if you want to, if you want to live forever on a, you know, the legacy relatives, like they really live on through who remembers them. Yes. Ultimately that is all it is. Right. And, and a lot of times what we're trying to, you know, do this rat race for and everything is, is a legacy play. It's like to be remembered. You know, I say that's Andrew's legacy too. He kind of wants to be remembered, you know? Um, but the, when you get down to the essence of it, it's, it's, yeah, it's that you have to, you have to be remembered by people who are actually alive at the time when you're not. And um, I thought, you know, my grandfather also in his time did, you know, he, he, he wasn't the flashy guy. He didn't try to run for office. He didn't like win any awards per se, but the life he did was a true artist's life. He was like an incredible, like just, I, I don't want to go, you know, make this sort of trite, pop culture reference, but think of Mr. Miyagi from Karate Kid. Yeah. You know, and maybe you have people who aren't old enough to remember that, but like, he literally is like, that's kind of what his life was. It's, he was just kind of a recluse dude who had a lot of, a lot to him, but wasn't looking to like showcase it. And he just, he, he, he literally cut bonsai. He had a whole bonsai collection, those little Japanese plants. And he was a gardener. Uh, he drank. A lot. He ate a lot. He smoked a lot, and he lived to 103. Still, he gardened for stars in Hollywood, which was typically what Japanese Americans did. That's why you know they uh. lived in that area because Hollywood was nearby. So like James Coburn, and there's all these other people. James Coburn is a from you may not know him, but he was in the Magnificent Seven, and he was a star. Oh uh, yes, in the yes, yes. 50s, 50s, and 60s. 
Um, and, you know, and I, I guess the thing for me was like, my second home was with that family and with my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, grandmother. And I spent a lot of time in his backyard garden. And it was like where I found peace and where mm. I, I realized that, because my other side of the family is very tumultuous. They're like ah. super academic, crazy epic story, which I can talk to you about. And I mentioned before, I mean, we're talking about like, you know, an MIT grad and Harvard grad from, or Harvard student from the twenties in New York who lived in Brooklyn, you know, uh, was in this high tech world of uh, air conditioning back in the twenties and did that. And, and was the president of a company uh, in Manchuria, China. And then, you know, an interface with the president through a, a, a Senate bill that allowed reunification of US citizens with foreign spouses, which later opened it up to all US military GIs to bring back their, you know, Vietnam War or Korean uh, war vets uh, rides back to the US. That was like the, the spectacular side of my paternal wow. side. My grandmother's, my dad, my mom's side is just like, Mr. Miyagi, just very quiet. Plot, just did bonsais, like Mexican food, a, you know, but, but, incredible like strong soul and spirit that more influenced me in my opinion than even that side he was just where it was like a zen experience and uh, i thought his story needed to be told so you know uh, i i put it out there in, in that medium i didn't i wouldn't know what i was expecting but i i always really was struck by these incredible old photos in particular the one from the internment camp or the, the concentration camp which I found randomly. And I was like, what is this? And I go, this is grandpa at Manzanar. I'm like, oh my God. I, I didn't even know he was at that camp. I thought he was at Tule Lake, but I found out later he was. And then I went to that spot that he was at in the photo ah. and I put them side by side. Yeah, that's in an earlier Facebook post. But um, you know, his life was, was one of not self-promotion, not of going for glitz and glam. It was just like a person who was content with perfecting his particular thing. Mm. And he just did it over and over. And, uh, you know, he lived to 103, almost 104. It's crazy. Um, but that was, it was just like two sides of my psyche, what shaped me. Uh, uh, one very much not looking for anything, just a very Japanese cultural thing where you just focus on one thing only. Mm -hmm. And then the other side was much more Western, uh, which tended to be more in, you know, excitement and like, you know, ego kind of things, you know. So anyway. Stop there. Yeah, your your grandfather Saito, um, yep. Grandpa Saito, um, mm -hmm. his his life, the way you describe it, is such a stark contrast to how uh, you know the current generation is growing up. Where, uh, er, you know, the the current generation is all about, mm -hmm. and and I include myself and in our generation to some extent because well. That was, you know, we didn't grow up with the internet, uh, but, you know, we do see the necessity and we do engage in it, you know, to some extent, uh, varying extent. Um, well, well, but JJ, see, here's the thing yes. you got to think about, right? Before we condemn, and, like, you know. And also you're younger than me. So like, I'm, a, I'm an older generation than you are, I think. Well, I don't know if you are, but maybe you are. Okay, I don't I know. know. You're I mean, at I'm least in my late 10 40s, years, so. yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, I'm in but, my 50s, yeah. <laughs> okay, so I, I'm younger than you. I mean, not really, but yeah, well, I'm younger <laughs> than you. All right, so this is what I always think about in ancestry, and it's such a it's such a helpful sort of thing to think about what you just talked about, like that this yeah. generation is more into the internet, they have that. But the internet 
of their generation was the telephone. Because like yes. what I found out was like my grandparents, you know, and, and you know, my dad's generation for me, the internet was television. Uh, they kind of grew up in that, but you, you had these, mo these media modes that developed through technology that changed and, and was not native to, you know, the, the youth of the previous generation. So I, you know, I, I would, you know, when I was doing the memorial, when I was putting it together, it was so complicated because I literally was taught, I had, eight, I had octogenarians and people in their 80s and 90s and then people in their 20s who had to attend, but I couldn't figure out how to invite people, right? So my, my, my aunt huh. Bobby, who was in the 80s, needed a phone call and uh -huh. a physical letter mailed, uh -huh. okay? Then there's people our generation who are fine with an email or Facebook, you, like, you know, you can call too, I guess, right? But it's usually, you know, like some of them called me, they just called me right up. The generation now would like, you can't call them. <laughs> you just, you don't call, you, yeah. you chat. You don't yeah. even email and you don't Facebook. You, you, you like send it on Instagram maybe, or you, yeah, you chat. Yeah. Maybe it's Telegram, maybe it's TikTok, maybe it's, I don't know, whatever, right? And they would like, you can't send a letter. You don't do a phone call. And no. so it was like an entire spectrum of sensibility around communication that I had to navigate. Um, th this is a quick, funny story. This analogy of back to the topic. I think, I think you know what? I think dissecting what you just said and yeah. analyzing that would also be just an interesting, you know, sort of. Uh, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll bookmark that. That, yeah, that, yeah. that is, it was so fascinating. But like my aunt, Judy, Okay, she's 80 something. She visited me in New York one time. And, uh, you know, I took her around, she appreciated it. But she, so she's on email, which is hip for her age. I think, I think yeah, 80 year olds are on email. Oh, yeah. She, she, she emailed me, hey, Eddie, can you send me your mailing address? And I'm like, oh, okay, sure, uh, Aunt Judy, why? You know, it's like, because I wanna send you a thank you letter. I'm like, but you just thanked me. Like, you know what I mean? For them, it's not complete unless a letter is sent. An email right. thanking you is not adequate, right? Right. Create. So I was like, "But you just thanked me. I don't understand." Oh, right. you because wanna, you want to email is not courtesy; it is utility. Yeah. So yeah, but for, if you want to extend courtesy, it has to. Young be. people aren't gonna physically send you a thank you letter unless it's no. like a wedding or something. Maybe something super high, like formal. But you know, that's just how it is, and. Uh, yeah. You know, for us, call waiting was a huge technological advancement. Remember the days where it was yes. rotary and you wanted to avoid having a, a phone number with a nine on it because it's the longest tr transition? Um, I think zero is. Zero is. Well, well, zero two, but that's why yeah. the area codes for New York and LA were two one two, two one two, two one two, one three, two one three. right? Right. <laughs> they got it. They got the first one. So it's one quick, right? You don't think about it. And if you're on the phone back then, the 80s let's say you you can't get any calls like it yes. would be a busy line if someone calls and you only had one phone usually maybe two if you're rich right yeah you had one phone and so when call waiting came in where you can hear a click if someone's trying to call in you can click through them it was like wow this is amazing I can't, it's like that was technological innovation and then when the the, the rotary became a touch phone that was yeah. even super awesome right yeah and uh yeah it's you know, that's technology. That's like the internet for our generation. Uh, my, you know, there's a reason it's called calling someone because you used to have to do calls. You physically went to someone's house and they, you had like, a, you had cookies and tea with them. The yeah, you call on them. My, yeah. yeah, my innovation to my grandparents were that you could phone call them now, you know? Uh, you know, you, you, that became the call. Right. right? You know, email, right. it's still a reference to mail, right? Yes. Even though it's, 
yeah. So we have these an anachronistic references to, you know, the coastless carriage, the incandescent light light uh, yes. candle, right? So yeah, it's just it's just it's just how technology progresses, and no, it's going to keep happening. And that those are all valid points. I I hope I was I wasn't condemning or or you know, shitting on today's generation. I I, I was just um, commenting on the difference. Yeah, um, no, that's true. That's yeah, true. I mean, you know, I mean, yes, these these technologies they change the way in which uh, they change the way we communicate, but um, it also does um, like so much of our lives are now in the public domain that sure, that true. wasn't you know that wasn't that didn't exist before you know mm-hmm. that's like, for sure true. Yeah, because in before the internet, you wouldn't put an ad out on the new local newspaper saying, "Hey, I'm doing this." I mean, unless you were a socialite or something, you know, <laughs> eating a sandwich now at Chipotle, or whatever. <laughs> yeah, you don't. No, no, it was very hard to uh, push out and push out information. You know, um, yeah. I, I, I think I, I don't even know what the early. I mean, I remember Friendster. That was like one of the first yes. early things, the early version of Facebooks, which was very clunky didn't kind of always work um and then uh obviously twitter came out <clears throat> which pushed out things and you know there's a moment of myspace and there's all these other platforms i think um, myspace still exists yeah but it you it was number one for a while mm-hmm. uh and then it kind of dropped back and facebook kind of came back um yeah but you know i don't even what is it now i i don't even you know there, there was that information which um uh, uh snapchat what's called snapchat um tiktok and snapchat i think well snapchat was the no trail thing right you will have no um uh documentation of what your social media was it'll expire right and that was a a priority is that that why it was so popular okay i actually never got on snapchat well because we're a certain generation yeah And, and then it became more the sort of the the augmented reality stuff with the the, the glasses and the hats yeah, and the faces. Yeah. Snapchat yeah. became more known for that. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, all these all these platforms. Uh, you know, I, I think it's kind of like songs. You know, like like artists, like people of a generation adopt certain ones and they kind of stick with them. You know, like '80s or something. At least for me, I'm not sure if you were more like ABBA or Bee Gees or uh, Michael Jackson se- or '70s. Okay. Yeah. '70s singer songwriter. Yeah. Yeah, for me, it was a little bit before my time. So I was like 80s. I was like, you know, around the Cindy Lauper, early Michael Jackson. Yeah. Uh, you know, I still have a nostalgia for that. And when I think of 70s, I think tacky. I think, you know, like I changed my mind on it later. But like with all these bell bottoms and long hair, I was much more of a clean cut 80s, you know, person. Uh, um, yeah. Yeah. And then the nostalgia was definitely in the 60s. I love the 60s of the my dad's music with like uh, Richie Valens. Uh, well, I say Richie Valens because he went to the high school with Richie Valens, but you know Elvis and Beatles. Well, Beatles might be a little later, but you know, you know the oldies. What I've been known as oldies back yeah. then. Yeah. So you, you, the same with technology platforms. I think I think people grew up with Facebook. They grew up yeah. with Snapchat. They grew yeah. up with Twitter. They grew up communicating this way, and I can't keep track of it anymore. I don't know. Yeah, it's what too many. Um, I mean, yeah. you might say like um, people are not using Facebook anymore, but I mean, globally though, it's still growing. It is the largest social media platform in terms of um, 
subscribers. Oh, but, but see, that's the thing. You also got to think about like, okay, so like in China, they use like WeChat and Japan, they use Line, Japan and Thailand. And in America, they use WhatsApp, like mm -hmm. all these like messaging platforms or whatever, and they change too. But it's, it, yeah, you got to think about who you're communicating with. So my, my, my two brothers live in Japan. I use Line. But if I'm going to communicate in Mexico with people, no one uses Line. They all use WhatsApp, right? Yeah. And if I'm in another country, they use different things, you know? And so it's just... Yeah, I know. I know. We need I, one platform to rule them all. We need one, I guess. <laughs> yeah. That's never going to happen. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, I use Kakao Talk, which is, uh, I think it's a, um, it's a Korean company. So with my family, know. yeah. So I, I use Kakao Talk with, with my family, but um, yeah. That's so funny. But that's it. Yeah. It's just, yeah. Oh, you know what's uh, funny? Just, just real fast. Just yeah. I, I, I kept, I said, I said, and I don't know if you could record at this point, but I'm like, I have this weird, like accidental witness to Asian American things. Yes. Uh, talk. Let's talk about that. Yes. Yes. Well, I yeah. was going to say it because you mentioned a Korean thing, right? Because, yeah. uh, so, so I, I played in different basketball groups other than Andrew Yang's, you know, in New York. And one of them was uh, this one I ran with Ben Sun and Peter Chen, who you may not, I don't know if you know them, but they started Asian Avenue, which was the first, it's when there was a war for the, um, the, the, the sort of Asian dating scene stuff, right? Okay. So like Jeff, Jeff Yang, who's uh, Tao Jones, he's, he's pretty prominent. His son is Hudson Yang, the guy from say, Fresh Off the Boat, right? His son is oh, okay. the star of that show. Was. Okay. He, um, he was, uh, he graduated Harvard. He had this great magazine called A, A, magazine which is asian yeah and uh he wanted to put a shit online in the 2000s and it started this asian online thing but there was also another platform called click to asia and there was another one called asian avenue which is run by peter and Pen peter and, and and ben uh asian avenue ended up winning that war hmm. and uh you know they're vcs now and they do like great stuff but i play basketball with them right i play basketball with them regularly at stuyvesant high school <laughs> um and uh a friend of that group is a guy named Bomb Kim. I don't know if you've heard of him. So Bomb, what I, I used to guard him, <laughs> but he 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 he's a he 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 went to Harvard as undergrad. I think he went to high school here. I'm not sure. But then was at Harvard Business School and quit to say because I want to start Groupon in Korea. Uh, and so he left U.S. He went to Korea and started Groupon, which became Coupang, which is uh -huh. the Amazon of Korea. So now he's like a multi-billionaire. <laughs> really? Yeah, he's, wow. he's the Jeff Bezos of Korea. It's so weird. Um, and I can't help but think I was like boxing him out in the low post or in a pickup basketball game at Stuyvesant in high school for, for years. Um, yeah, anyway, that's a weird factoid that just keeps coming up for me. Um, so, so I'm curious. So um, the way the, the different guys play basketball, like their style, their, yeah. um, I don't know, yeah. Whatever. Yeah. The way their they game. play their game. Yeah. Yes. Uh, does that tell you anything about the person? No, not a, no, <laughs> they, 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 no, no, really. Like you can have like, I don't know what that would be like. like I'm trying to think of a clear person type. Let's say, let's say you have um, uh, Jeff Bezos, I guess. I don't know. I can't imagine playing basketball with Jeff Bezos. Like, like um, for example, so let me, uh, so you know, I studied psychology in college. Yeah. And so like, that's where I always sort of fall back to. It's like, I wonder like how, you know, what makes a person tick, you know, that sort of thing, internal mechanisms and all that sure. and personality. Uh, so, so 
to clarify my question, so let's say um, like somebody who takes risks in the way they play basketball, do they also take risks in life? You know, kind of. Oh. Is there is there some correlation in terms of like, because you know you cool. you've been playing with them a long time, and so you kind of got to know them. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, not the, I don't feel I want to dissect Andrew's game, but. You know, Andrew liked basketball because he just liked basketball, but that wasn't his skill set. Let's just be honest. Like I grew up my entire <laughs> life playing basketball for oh, the yeah. Asian leagues, like the ones that Jeremy Lin played in, right? It's a, it's a brutal competitive thing on the West Coast. It's not like that in the East Coast huh. as much. Yeah, as much. As, Maybe no. except in Chinatown, there's some Chinese leagues that are pretty pretty competitive. But Andrew didn't grow up that way. I mean, he grew up in, he grew up in upstate New York, like in the middle of, you know, pretty rural country for a while. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Um, yeah. And uh you know, he, for him, basketball was more of like a cool, fun activity. Uh, I don't think he was trying to, I, I think he would like to have like been really like dominant or whatever, but you know, for him, it was social and it was cool, you know? Um, and I, you know, his game was, you know, he was a shooter. He, he played within the flow of the game. He wasn't like, you know, super innovative or creative or, you know, whatever in the game, because it's not his skill set. It's not really what he did. I didn't, I didn't know that until I, you know, work with him right I mean, he's an incredible operations guy he's an incredibly almost maniacally hard worker you know yeah. and and very structured thinker um you don't see that on the basketball court that's just not that's not where his intelligence per se reaches its apex i mean he's, he's, a, he's a solid player it's just not a michael jordan or whatever you know it's yeah, just yeah. not like that even though he, he's kind of a michael jordan in the professional political world in my opinion so I, I yeah i was just curious if there was any sort of i don't know correlation or, or something well um, i think like persistence and that stuff plays out like mm -hmm. you know and some some okay. people do something like they bring their ego like they're used it's like it's almost like birth order you're used to being the oldest child and you yeah. can't they, they bring that to the I'm, game. So I'm a huge birth order person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so you know, a lot of his friends who were leaned more private sector finance, right? They were definitely like weekend warrior types, right? And so like, I don't, for me, basketball at that point was more of exercise and being creative, not about winning, say, right? Yeah. And it became like just about winning. And it sometimes it was not, not fun. I was like, dude, chill out, man, right? I was like, you know. Um, <laughs> but but you came from the competitive West Coast. <laughs> no, but but basketball out West is an intergenerational, like, like honor thing. I don't even know how to explain it. Huh. Like you don't have that anywhere else. It's interesting. It's, it's okay. So this is a quick history on the Asian basketball leagues, which is technically the Japanese basketball leagues, right? Uh -huh. So after World War II, um, uh, during World War II in the camps, the barracks had inter-barrack competitions that they did. It was a lot of baseball back then, but mm -hmm. it could have been volleyball, maybe some basketball. I don't know. Basketball is hard to do in the dirt, in the desert, right? But baseball yeah. was like perfect, right? A lot of land, arid. Um, and they took that after the camps got disassembled and they maintained it. So they tended to congregate, Japanese who, who left the camp stayed on the West Coast mostly. And then they formed, you know, they were in these cities like LA and San Jose and San Francisco and, and Seattle. But it, it, the epicenter really was like California. It was like San Jose and Sacramento and Los Angeles, right? And then within Los Angeles, cause you can't commute on weekends to San Francisco 
there were the neighborhoods, right? So my neighborhood was West Los Angeles. That was my team. But then there's Venice, Gardena, um, Pasadena, West Covina, uh, you know, Orange County, you know, as a lump. And then you play each other in this very significant schedule. Basically, it's the season. You play almost every single weekend and you practice every Friday for a game on Sunday. And then there are tournaments that you travel to. Wow. Uh, it, yeah. Oh, yeah. Every like from from uh, late spring to summer or late spring, especially uh, springtime, uh, the, the tournament sort of system starts setting up. So each neighborhood runs its own three day tournament uh, or two day tournament, Sunday and a Saturday, you play two games on Saturday and one on Sunday. And people travel from, you know, we have the San Jose Ninjas come down to LA. We have uh, Orange County and San Diego and Sacramento come down for the big tournaments, like the Tigers yeah. tournament was a big one. Um, and then we travel up there and it becomes this exchange where it, it, it's basically almost more for the parents because they get an excuse to go travel up, you ah. know, and they hang out at a hotel and then they socialize and their kids play basketball. So it gives them a reason. It's like, it's actually, as much for the parents as it is for the kids. And, so this um, is, yeah. these are uh, youth leagues? Yes. Um, okay. They start down here from kindergarten where you play what? in a peewee basket. And I played bat baseball. The baseball system dismantled because it's there's not as much interest in baseball and it's a lot harder to execute because mm -hmm. you need more people, you need equipment. Basketball is really simple, right? Yeah. Um, so I played from kindergarten to high school, essentially. Uh, there's a drop off in high school because a lot of the kids like play high school. They play in their high school. They don't play in the league because okay. they, they overlap. You, you yeah. can't play games with both teams. And sometimes you have to sign a waiver by the high school that you're not playing in other leagues. Uh. Um, yeah, so it's it's complicated. But up until early high school, um, it's it's like from middle school, like I was like from late elementary to high school, it is it. I mean, it is serious like stuff you know i mean the asian female leagues actually is a feeder for the ncaa i mean i don't know if you know but asian women wow. do exceptionally well oh lindsay yamasaki was a stanford grad and was the number one player in the country uh natalie nakase who played at ucla is now working as an assistant coach for the clippers but you know all the, there's a lot of these uh, people uh, particularly women who what were in the asian leagues got scholarships to schools like stanford and ucla and then, you know, a lot of times they go, okay, I'm going to now actually do some traditional work, but some continue on. And they're coaches, they're, you know, at college level, one at the pro that I know of. Um, it's a serious thing that the men are different. It's just too com competitive. I think rarely do they rise, save uh, Jeremy Lin. Jeremy Lin is like one of the only people. There was Rex Walters. He, you don't know him. He was Hapa. He was half Japanese uh, white. He played at Kansas, and then he played for a while in the NBA. Hapa, um, is that a term for half Japanese, half white? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, oh, yeah? It's, a, it's a Hawaiian term, uh, okay. I believe, called Hapa Haoli, which okay. means half white. But it's Hapa is definitely the term Japanese used to describe someone who's of mixed Japanese ancestry. So like Natalie, uh, Naomi Osaka would be Hapa. Uh, but that's a Japanese-American reference to it. In Japan, they call you double. Double? double? I, don't, I forget what it is because it's complicated. Yeah, Japan yeah. has a different set of nomenclature than Americans do for the mixed Japanese. I'm sure Koreans have some term too, but I don't know it. I, yeah. I never, that's true. I don't, I don't know what that is either. I mean, there are a lot of like incredibly prominent Korean, half Korean folks like, um, God, 
I don't know, Johnny Morton's half Japanese. There's athletes that are like yeah. probably lesser known. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but yeah, no, it's it's um it's a, it's an institutional term now, and and quite frankly, fifth sixth generation Japanese kids who are the generation after me are mostly hapa. They're mostly mixed. It's like 70 to 80% intermarriage uh, rates are mm -hmm. happen. So the Japanese American community as a pure genetic line is pretty much not there anymore. It's mm. uh, it's Japanese mixed with someone, something else. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I actually, in my formative years, I, I grew up in Washington Heights. So it's, mm. you know, wow. Hispanic, Black, a um, yeah. lot of Puerto Ricans and Dominicans. And, um, so, I mean, I did go to a Korean church and so I, I, I saw Korean people only like on the weekends, only on Sundays. And, um, but the neighborhood, you know, um, what was the point I was gonna make? Oh yes, okay. So that's how I grew up. Now my sister's kids, um, my nephews and nieces, in some ways they're more Korean than I am, even though they're you know, generation later, because yeah. they grew up in neighborhoods where there were a lot more Koreans. And in so New York? They, um, well, New York and New Jersey. Yeah. Okay. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. A lot of Koreans in Jersey, Fort Lee, Palisades Park. Yeah, right. Palisades yeah. Park, Fort Lee. And, um, and actually, one of my sisters, she, uh, they went back to Korea and lived there for like six years. And um, yeah, so the kids... Oh partly grew up there too. Um, I mean, they did go to international school, but you know, still they were surrounded by Koreans. <laughs> you know, I, I grew up, well, my first girlfriend was Korean, uh, a PK, oh, yeah. all right, also, uh, P kid. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. I saw that in your bio, like PK, huh, I wonder if he means pastor's kid. Because, I, th yeah. I thought Korean folks know what that means implicitly, yeah. because yeah, there's yeah. a heavy amount of pastor, you know, Christian Koreans in America. Yes. Uh, so I happened, my first girlfriend in LA was that, and it was, you know, the part of LA I grew up in was mostly Japanese, uh, if it was Asian, uh, but the Korean and Chinese communities were starting to move in. And uh, she was one of the early folks. She, she, her family left Korea and then moved to Minnesota, then to Texas, and then started <laughs> a congregation in a swap mall. I don't even know what that is, like, a, like an old rundown mall in Koreatown in LA. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I, I got to spend a lot of time there. Now I didn't join the Korean service. I joined the English service, right? Sometimes, but mm -hmm. I was, I was attending a Buddhist church in LA at the same time, which was across the street from our house in LA. Right. Um, weird. It's just weird. But, um, so I, I really got my first education in like Asian-ness outside of Japanese through her, just mm -hmm. the food we ate, the little black beans, like Korean share food and a common load table. Yes. Uh, like these metal spoons, like, yes. it's like, we don't do that. metal metal hashi metal and the hashi metal chopsticks and yeah hard to handle real thin right i know um, i hate those <laughs> there's there's the, always going to be the and, smell of kimchi right like the, the and the bowls pepper. are metal too yeah. yeah like japanese don't use metal uh yeah. almost ever plastic more right yeah and so it was like so interesting it's like well there's rice it's the same and then I love this meat shit. <laughs> and I was like, I'm sorry. Like, it's so good. <laughs> we didn't, you know, you don't barbecue as a regular thing you eat in Korean household. You have like pickled stuff or beans yeah. or like whatever, kimchi for sure. And then the smell of the red pepper. Oh man, it was, it's strong because you got to store it somewhere. Right. And it's yeah. just always around. Japanese don't have that. It's like, woo. -hoo. But, um, and my best friend in high school is Korean. Um, and, uh, you know, 
it was funny. I didn't think about, I didn't think about the inter-ethnic Asian-ness in LA until more of those moments. But like, honestly, racial dynamics, I think in, in California are very different than New York. Yes. Um, they're much more stratified white block here than in California, which is a majority minority state. And in particular, though we, you know, we know people are certain races and ethnicities, you know, most of my fr friends and colleagues in LA are Mexican, like not Latino, Mexican, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, we just know, hey, you're Japanese, you're Mexican, you're black, you're, you know, whatever. It's just like, you just say it as like, it's a name tag. It's no big deal. But here right. there's a heavier thing to it. It's like people avoid it like don't even want to mention it. And it's so interesting for me when I moved here that that's in play, you know? That's, that's interesting. I don't know if I ever noticed that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think also New York culture is, um, we don't, well, West Coast, you're much more friendly. And I think, <laughs> I think so in general. Laid back, we're laid back. Laid yeah. back, more friendly. And also I think, um, I mean, people out there socialize differently. Over here, I think people play much closer to the vest. Um, well, there, there's more, there's, a, there's more, this is how I've understood it in my 20 plus years being, or 20 years in New York. Yeah. The, th the factor that's different on the East Coast, in particular New York's, let's say, right? There's a, there's a definite aspect of classism that is a part of a calculation of a person's head here, like what school you went to in a way that isn't in play in California. We're like, we're very Western in that way. We don't care what school you went to or, you know, like you didn't go to like Dalton or Chode or you didn't go yeah. to a specialized high school or you didn't go to an Ivy League school or you didn't, you know, we don't have that at all. There's do you mean, that. do you mean among, amongst Asians or amongst everybody, New Yorkers? Everybody, yeah. everybody. There, there is definitely that um, yeah. kind of, um, I guess, pedigree, if yes. you will. Yes, pedigree is not a thing in yeah. California in the way that it is here. I mean, not to say that there isn't some of that. Yeah. It's just more of like, are you, fit, healthy, attractive. <laughs> I mean, what kind of car do you drive, maybe? Is like, maybe, <laughs> maybe. Even neighborhoods are kind of not relevant. It's like, if you're from Bel Air, it's kind of douchey. It doesn't really matter. It's like, you know, it doesn't matter. Like they don't, they don't care. And here it's really particular. Yes, I went to St. Anne's and then, you know, I was, uh, you know, I was at this, it's like tradition and history is way more relevant on the East Coast than on the West Coast. And this is very much a very Western U.S. thing. Yeah. Oh, yes. And and I think maybe because New York is an older city than than L.A. or any other California cities. Um, I don't yeah. know. There there is also like there there is um, old money here too. Still, I think, um, and yeah. sort of the European um, tradition history and. Um, although there isn't really an aristocracy, not necessarily, but there is a, there is some, some of that. Well, you, you have Harvard, Yale, Cornell clubs, you know, you have sure. uh, all these things. You have class reunions every five years. I mean, these are Ivy Leagues. And yeah. then you have, a, you know, there's a, there's a pretty big consciousness of prep school or even public school stuff. I went to Hunter, I went to Stye, you know, it's not. You know, no one's proud that they went to like Crossroads. Well, I don't say or like the top, like El Camino Real or Taft. They don't care. They don't, they don't care. Who cares? 
Yeah, no? I don't know. I don't know why that is in New York. Yeah, but yeah, that that does count for a lot. I, I never cared for it. I couldn't care less. Right, but but you um, know, I mean, I think I think you just feel it. I couldn't understand it at first, and now yeah. I'm on the other side of it. I get I get it. You know, I mean, it went more than like, why do these people wear black socks all the time? Like that that was like a weird thing. New Yorkers default to these black socks thing. Then West Coast, we never wear that. You never yeah. wear black. You wear white socks for anything. And black black socks and just black clothing in general. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. Asian too. So it's hard to partition it. Asians tend to lean black because of the complexion, it just works better design-wise. But like black socks were like an identifier for me in the West Coast before I moved here, that this is not an, a, a West Coast person, you know, like Jeff Dang oh, or whatever. Yeah, it was like they were in black socks in the summer. What, what are you doing? Like, this is different, you know? It, it's yeah. something a Californian would understand uh, because, you know, you say you're laid back, we say you're high strung. Yes. Yes. Right. It's a it's a different way we see each other, and it's like why why are you set off so easily on stuff and it's like so uptight? Just chill, just relax. You know, yeah. right? That's how we would see it. I don't know if uptight is quite the word, but there's there's definitely a sense of urgency to everything, uh, and sure. sort of hyperness to to. Well, that's New York for sure. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I, I see. Mean, yeah, if you're looking at um, other parts of the East Coast, yes. Um, but also, like, if you go south, I mean, even you know, on the East Coast, if you go south, it changes the culture and the demeanor of people changes. No, that's true. Um, that is true. That is yeah, true. and that's, that's, I think that's the one thing. I don't know how cognizant people are um, in the U.S., like, you know, everyday people that the U.S. is is not a singular country culturally. Of course not. Of course it's not. not. Yeah. And um, I've done a fair amount of road trips. And, um, and you know, actually, so after I left my corporate job, I, I uh, um, spent like three months over, well, two months overseas, mm. just kind of like traveling around. Oh, cool. and, then, and then I did uh, cross country across the U.S. And um, I mean... I knew wow. it even before then, but but it was so apparent then that uh, U.S. is a collection of cultures and collection of peoples. The U.S. is is a collection of states that decided in in order to protest unfair taxes to yes. become a union. I mean, yes. we're, we're, we're corporations that decided to become a country, essentially, right? So. Exactly. And that's why it's the United States of America, yeah. not America, period. Yeah, yeah with, with these different parts of it, right? Yeah, I mean, I did a road trip, too, by the way, um, after yeah. my Coro year. Uh, I, it was like two and a half months on a car driving yeah. around the U.S., 42 states and three Can Canadian provinces. Nice. Uh, yeah, I'd like to compare your notes. Uh, but yeah, it was, um, no, the, the surface was the people and the terrain changed, but then the food but, um, you know, the, and the, the one thing back then that united America was, there's two things, wrestling and Arizona iced tea. That was what I remember <laughs> Everywhere had wrestling conversations, like, you know, WWF back then, and everywhere had Arizona iced tea. If I were doing it again today, I would definitely explore barbecue uh, more as an institution of America. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I went to like all, all these baseball stadiums, uh, I went to SummerSlam in Madison Square Garden. I don't know why I did that. It's my roommate. We went together. Um, but, you know, on, on these long drive stretches, like 18 hours from Minneapolis yeah. to Black Hills for, you know, the Mount Rushmore, there's nothing. It's flat. And 
at the rest stops, the only consistent thing is, oh, they got Arizona iced tea. So <laughs> I sugared up. I probably almost developed diabetes on that trip, but um, <laughs> I mean, it's changed now. I'm sure. I'm sure there are other options, but uh, that yeah. was America for me, and it it was a uh, it was pretty amazing. And you know, my stop in Alabama, Birmingham was, or was, was it Birmingham or was it Mississippi? No, it was Jackson, Mississippi. Okay. Wow. That's when I realized America is a white and black country. You know, it is. Yeah. And it, it was clear how it was racially divided because every worker at this place that we were eating at was black and every customer was white. Never in anywhere I've been in California was that the dynamic. You might lean more this way or that way, but it was like yeah. so stark. And then when another place, same thing, yeah. same thing. Yeah. Uh, now that's the deep South. It's not all of America, but it kind of followed a similar pattern. And that's, you know, then I understood, wow, my America in LA is just very different than everything in between New York and LA, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, so I think if you, if you're, if you're aware of that, then you kind of also understand um, how, you know, culturally it's different and how politically it's different and why people would lean one way or another and, or, sure. or say, you know, certain things and behave certain ways. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It's, it's, you know, I mean, no, no country is sort of um, uniform. Homogenous. Yeah, uniform or homogenous. Uh, like Japan's pretty through. close, but yeah, Japan is very close <laughs> because yeah. culturally it sort of demands that right uh, conformity, forced assimilation and conformity. Yeah, and yeah. and no immigration, no legitimate immigration. I mean, icons of Jap Japan are actually Chinese, like the inventor of instant ramen, Momofuku Ando, is a Taiwanese man. Uh, yeah. the, the number one Japanese baseball player of all time, Sadaharu Oh, is Chinese, I think. I think he's Chinese, he might be Korean. Uh, but they have to change their name to fit in, but they're yeah. actually- Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that, that um, you know, it's, it's just an interesting side note. So I, after Deutsche Bank, I went to work for a Japanese bank and, um, and uh, at one point, um, the HR department changed the uh, their system, and so uh, the names that started appearing in the corporate directory uh, sort of reverted back to like uh, the official legal names as opposed to their preferred names. Now there was one uh, employee in particular; she had a Japanese name, but she's ethnically Korean, so she grew up in Japan. Oh, but like you said, dangerous. Right. Yeah. right, exactly. So she had dangerous. to, she, uh, her family had to, you know, because that's um, non-ethnic Japanese in Japan are treated as like second-class citizens. There's and, many YouTube videos about this, yeah. Yeah, and mm -hmm. so, and especially Koreans because they, during the occupation, they were, you know, forced over and, and all that. And so there are generations of uh, yep. Korean Japanese. Anyway, so she's one of them. <laughs> Yeah. She came to work for this Japanese bank, and so were you in her Tokyo, by the way. Where were you? No, 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 no. They never sent me to Tokyo. No, oh, in New oh, York. Oh, you worked for them, but you weren't physically there. Okay. Right, okay. right. Yeah, yeah. I was working for their New York branch. Okay. Um, and uh, so her legal Korean name started appearing in the corporate directory. So basically outing her. Now you know because this is a you know American branch, there wasn't a big huge yeah like yeah um but but it was an issue with her and so people who didn't know 
uh, her heritage, especially the Japanese people, they were like, oh, they were surprised yeah. uh, because she spoke Japanese. She had a Japanese. Oh, that'll change their total interaction with her. Are you kidding? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, the thing is, the people who ran the HR department, they were not Japanese, you know, because it's the, the American branch. And so they had no idea, like, why is this such, such a big deal? Like, because they, oh, yeah, they don't know. <laughs> this is like when they launched the Chevy Nova in Mexico. And of course, the car and Nova means no go in Spanish. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right. No go. No go. <laughs> I'm going to buy a car named No Go. Doesn't make any sense. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, and what I also find is uh, not not all Japanese understand uh, or uh, are taught the history either. So, like, the, I, I was having a conversation with a, uh, a Japanese colleague uh, who's part of the home staff. So they're, they're here for several years and then they go back. Okay. And I uh, was talking to one of them and, and I was telling them how my parents learned Japanese when they went to school. And mm -hmm. they were like, oh, but you're not Japanese. Yeah, I'm Korean, but my parents had to learn Japanese in school. Like, why is that? Because of the occupation. What is that? <laughs> like, they don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, look, yeah. there's, there's a spectrum of ignorance of which Japanese people, this is a Japanese person asking you this? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, Japanese are, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're comfort women deniers, right? And all that yeah. whole thing, yeah, right? yeah. all the things that happen. But, you know, in America, it's even worse. They, you know, after oh, yes. this conversation, they'll go like, so what part of China are you from? You know, it'll just be one amorphous big thing, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that, you know, there, there's, a, there's a museum in Tokyo um, that that is the formal Japanese position on the history of Japan and the whole like Nanking, you know, not not Korea specifically, but China is like thing. It says like, and then this thing happened, and then just move on. It's like it's not even acknowledged. It's acknowledged that was a big thing, but it's not like a big thing, you know. Yeah. Uh, and you know that that's the. Uh, I mean, that's something Japan is dealing with right now. Uh, uh, but they're, you know, they're very comfortable culturally with uh, redacting or telling, sanitizing a particular story, as all countries are, right? As I mean, all countries are. America yeah. too, definitely. Yeah. And, and talk about on... Panama Canal and start a civil war with Colombia to create the Panama Canal. We don't want to talk about that. You know, it's like, you know, yeah. we're not that type of person. Uh, we're not that type of uh, country. So anyway. Well, even even stuff that happens in the U.S., like, you know, you mentioned the internment camps, like mm -hmm. how many people in the U.S. actually are aware of internment camps? I mean, I think most people, uh, you know, they're aware of the Holocaust. And well, we, you know, we like to call it concentration camps, actually. That's actually the formal position of the Japanese community, because internment, it, it's funny, like th there's been a lot of attempts to educate and put it in formal textbooks. And I think they've done that. I mean, it was mm -hmm. it was a, it was an exhibit in the Museum of American History in the Smithsonian in D.C. It was an okay. entire section. So wow. I think it's known now. Uh, I don't think but they're not putting it in the same space as the Nazi concentration camp. Sure. Because, uh, of course, yeah, because it it wasn't it wasn't like no, that. No, no, yeah. there, there wasn't mass executions and cremations. But from the standpoint of the community, the indignities were similar in sure. the loss of you know, property. You had to move and only have two suitcases. You lived in a horse barrack with many, many families in very freezing cold places. Um, it was certainly more humane than, the, you know, than Auschwitz and Dachau. Uh, but it doesn't undermine the fact that, see, the Nazis had no predisposition uh, or statement on humanity. They were actually 
formally against anyone who was an Aryan. But America was supposed to be above that, right? We, we, you know, we, we like poo-pooed or whatever, like, you know, on what happened there and, and the racism of Nazi Germany, but yet we were doing it simultaneously yeah. in the country. So that's what is even more difficult to kind yeah. of reconcile. Yeah, and I think I think that is the interesting, uh, you know, um, that is a sort of a almost singularly interesting thing is while they were condemning the concentration camps in Germany and and you know in Europe, uh, they were doing the same here. Yeah, and um, I mean, um, and it wasn't it wasn't publicly acknowledged at that time, right? Um, well, the, the rhetoric was. And I have, a, I have a particular take on it from people I've talked to. Mm -hmm. The rhetoric was this, okay, so, look, some would argue that Pearl Harbor was allowed to happen because Roosevelt really wanted to enter the war. And it makes a lot of sense in that the first place the efforts were focused on were Europe, right? Most of the efforts were Europe. And I get it, like if Roosevelt needs to stop what's going on in Europe from happening and spreading, he needs and he needs the Congress to agree to it. He needs a, something to happen that instigates it. And Pearl Harbor happened, right? So we'll just like put that in a, put a, put a stake in that. Okay. Secondly, I don't want to get into conspiracy theories. Some people argue yeah. that's actually true or not. Second thing is, well, if you have that threat from the Japanese, there's a lot of Japanese in Hawaii and the West Coast, they need to be sequestered. This is kind of like the Muslim situation after 9-11, right? Yeah. And they were saying we should like put them all in Guantanamo or whatever. Uh, but they decided to sort of, do that within a certain line, a Western line of the United States. So I actually had some family in Spokane, Washington, who were not required to be in the camps. So I have family who were not in the camps during World War II. Interesting. Yeah, they were in. They were sponsored by a Christian family in Spokane and allowed to work. And it, it was like at first you go, "That's so great," but my great grandfather literally has said this. He because he visited his brother in a camp uh, during the war and came out and he goes, sometimes I wish I were in a camp because do you understand how hard it is to live out there while mm. you're, you're, you're selling vegetables to families whose children are being killed by Japanese people? You know, it's like, it's the, the, the hate and the racism that went on during did, the war so, was almost like better to be in did the camp. They, yeah. Did they, yeah, because, um, yeah, because you didn't have to face the public if you were in those camps. Well, you, you also got three yeah. squares a day. You got yeah. three meals, didn't have to worry about anything. I mean, they, um, had to, they had to make a living. Did they have to hide the fact that they were Japanese or change their names or or pretend after that they the were- war, after, after the war, after the war, during the war. I don't know, actually, no, that's a good question. Did they pose as Chinese people? It wouldn't have been Koreans then. So did they pose as Chinese? I know my aunt did pose as a Chinese for a while because mm. she moved after the camp dismantled to New York City. She lived in Inwood and, uh, you know, worked at a gift shop in Rockefeller Center. Mm. But I think for a stretch there, she couldn't reveal that she was Japanese. Um, you know, when the 80s came around, she definitely was fine with being Japanese because all the Japanese, you know, they, they bought Rockefeller Center and all these tourism and yeah. Japan was like a rich country. But yeah, for a while there, it was really, it was really hard. Um, you know, my, here, here's the harder part. My dad was, was born, you know, he, he's an immigrant actually. He, he was, his parents are, well, his mother is an American citizen from birth, but he, they went to Japan in 1932 for my grandpa's job. And my dad was raised in Tokyo and then in Daigen, Manchuria. Um, and 
he he didn't come to the U.S. until he was 12. So he spoke no English. Mm. It's kind of group Japanese. When he came to uh, the U.S., they stayed in Spokane with the great grandmother and some family. And he got beat up by his cousins for being disloyal. Like by his own family. Wow. They say, you traitor. What the hell is wrong with you? And he's like, what the hell? I, just, <laughs> I went with my family on a business trip to Japan. They didn't come back in the 30s. And, and it was like crazy. So he was getting hate. Not only was he having the immigrant experience and not speaking English and yeah. having to be like three grades younger and everything as a, as a, he came to the U.S. after World War II as a Japanese man, yeah, yeah. a boy. And he got hit, he got bullied by his cousins. Yeah. His own family. It's crazy, you know? It's just yeah. like, oh, wow. It's, yeah, it's heartbreaking, so. Um, I'm, I'm sure, you know, the discrimination and the hardship that they experienced, you know, here in the U.S., um, I don't know. I'm, I guess I'm making excuses. Um, you know, maybe like that sort of disposition them to be sort of harsh, you know, harshly judgmental on their own people. I don't know. Because there is sometimes. Are, are you talking, who are you talking about? My, my talking about your or? father's cousins. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is something I didn't put this in the, the Word document, you know, I sent to you, but. I, so prior to maybe eight years ago, I had no interactions with my family. We never, I didn't even know them. I didn't really? know they existed. That, that org chart didn't know it existed. I just, I, I, because my father had such a difficult time with his relatives, he sequestered us from them our entire upbringing. I didn't know them. So when I reconnected, when I, when I, I was helping my grandmother move, she was actually being evicted from her home. Uh -huh. uh, in her late ages and I was helping her move and I found this binder and I was like, what is this? It's like a thick binder with all these pictures and bios, you know, it was like photocopied. And she goes, oh, that's your, that's your dad's family. Like, which is mine, not hers, but mine. I'm like, what the hell? It was like, so it was a, basically a binder of, of like well-organized with this org chart of every single person who's ever come to the US from my mother, my father's mother's family, the Hisayasus. And Everybody, and, and she had 10 brothers and sisters, all of whom had like, you know, eight children or whatever. And it was just like massive family. Um, and I never had any interactions with them because my dad says, I don't interact with the Hisayasus. And so my effort and my ancestry uh, want was to reconnect with them, to, to, to add on to these resources and, and not them be names, but be actual relationships I had. And so that's what I've been doing about a decade now. Oh, and wow. why I have all those pictures. That's why I have these pictures. And uh, to ensure that, you know, I do that documentation for my Xiaomi side of the family because it's so rich. I, I, like I have firsthand narratives of people born in like 1880 about their, about their life, like in America. It's like a true American immig Asian immigration story documented in words and pictures. It's like crazy, yeah. So it, it was special, it was really special. So are you are you producing anything with this, like a, a book or something? Or um, well, so so one of the things I have, uh, you know, as much as my grandfather's story touched you, uh, my my uh, maternal grandmother, my paternal grandmother's story is mesmerizing. It's so epic, I can't even explain it to you. And I've had friends who she she wrote it down in a sort of biography, and. I've had friends in media say, you should need to do a screenplay on this. This is crazy. And you know, back 20, 15 years ago, it may not have been the right timing, but 
it is a strong female Asian American lead that is inter an international story that involves a president signing a law into law. It involves uh, a struggle to survive the communist insurgents back in the Korea. It involves passing through Hiroshima. It involves like an American. She was an American, though Americans wouldn't see her as an American, right? Yes. In a Japanese occupied Manchuria, who was teaching Chinese people English because she loved America and yet was on the other side of the fence, what could, because they were, they were, you know, he had a job working for a Japanese refrigeration company, right? And so she was there silently rooting for America while on the other side of the fence. Wow. Teaching that... English to, yeah, it's crazy. Did, did she, how did, how did the Japanese around her treat her or did she hide I think she did it privately. Yeah, she okay. did it privately. She she was a she was a she was literally, if you just take the ethnic racial stuff away, yeah. she was a child born in 1911 in the U.S. She was a, a roaring 20s child and a 30s liberated woman. She married this guy, this Japanese American guy, right? And they went to Japan, which was extremely and still is conservative and misogynistic compared to American sensibilities, right? Yeah, that must so, have been really hard for her. It was really, she hated Japan. Yeah. She hated it the whole time because women are treated like shit there. You yeah. Know? Still are, right? And and um, relative to America, right? Say that. Yes. Um, and so she hit, she hit that, you know? But she insisted after the war, we are moving back to America. And she basically forced her husband to go back to America. Um, in 1950, 52, mm. um, because it was just like, but the problem is, and th this is what's so interesting about two grandfathers and the, the complexities of immigration in the US, right? So the grandfather you saw on the Facebook story, my maternal grandfather was born in, in central California and went to Japan when he was like two. Mm -hmm. And so he, and then he came back when he was 19. So he has like, he's really a Japanese person, right? Yes. So he's American citizen. My father's grandfather was born in Japan in 1903, came to America in 1906, and lived his entire life in America. High school, high school, college, work until 1932. He had a he was a trader in a in a Japanese uh, uh, a trading company on Wall Street. He went to <laughs> MIT and Harvard, and yet he was not American. Yeah, he spoke perfect English. You know, it just didn't, it's just because of the, the, the early part of where you were born that he could not come back to America with my grandmother who was born in, in Seattle and they had to petition the government to reunite them. It's, it's so funny, but he was totally American. Yeah, yeah. and so that, that speaks volumes uh, in, in terms of, um, you know, how you, our identity, right? Yeah. Cultural identity, ethnic identity, national identity um and you know yeah and, and all those things uh because culturally your paternal grandfather was, was very american, american. Oh, even very though american. nationality he's japanese yeah uh, and, yeah his his citizenship yeah yeah his citizenship right. because he couldn't become an american because of, i think the 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 chinese exclusion act stuff right yeah they didn't allow that... naturalization of somebody yeah. yeah, at that time. Yeah. When did that, do you know, do you know when that uh, got repealed, the Exclusionary Act? Well, technically my grandfather's act, uh, 
uh, nullified it, but that was that was for well, I don't know when the Clarence Exclusion Act got uh, nullified, but uh, he they were able to work around it by just having a reunification of spouses thing. Okay. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, we can probably Google it and find out. I, but, we can probably Google it. Yeah. 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 I was just yeah. wondering. So, and some would argue it still hasn't been repealed. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, um, yeah. Well, but look, Andrew. Okay, so Andrew Yang's generation mm-hmm. were the exceptional visas, right? The Chinese that came in that time were all like, like, like educated and upper status within China, mm-hmm. right? So his dad became, I think he came over with IBM and became an executive or something like that. That's why, he, I mean, he went to Phil Exeter, you know, I mean, he, he wasn't hurting like financially uh, growing up. And so there's a whole generation of Chinese in particular that were exceptional visas. And that, that was the same with South Asians, with Indians. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more recently that they, 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 they became, you know, in, in the West Coast, in California, the issue that has been the case is, well, Mexicans are mostly not that. They're crossing the border and undocumented and whatnot versus they're passing this exceptional test, this elite visa test. And so, yeah, it, it really depends. Uh, I, don't, I don't know, yeah. It, it's, it, this is now immigration history and how everything gets sorted in the U.S., which is very complicated. It's very complicated. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I I looked into it very briefly. Well, not not immigration per se, but just a history of America. Um, well, mm-hmm. during the pandemic, for some reason, I became very interested in history, even more mm-hmm. than I was generally interested in history, mm-hmm. and um, so. Um, and it was triggered by this um, uh, the polarization that was happening, and um, you know, uh, in, in the, on the political realm. And um, and I was curious as to like, why are we so polarized, um, and how do we become this way? And so it, it started there. It started there. So I started looking further and further back, and I and. And also, uh, for some reason, I became like, um, like I was wondering if this country was going to fall apart. Like, like I like kind of like Trump times in the Trump era times, or uh, no, this past year. This, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, before the election, I guess. Yeah, yeah. before the election. Yeah. yeah. Um, I actually, I wasn't that confident about the election. I wasn't confident that the election would have changed much because. I felt like, um, you know, if there was a different president, it would have some uh, some impact. But the country was already so polarized that having a new president was not necessarily going to change how people felt about yeah. their country. Yeah. And yeah. and to to great extent, that's that's true. Um, you know, to the point where. Uh, people are there are huge um, you know factions of people who are who still claim the election was stolen and yeah I I mean I I, I've thought about this a lot and Mm -hmm. um, you know I mean there's no right answer but like my my sensibility around this I I, will I say there's a polarization yeah more so than normal right Uh, is this political sort of like like I really, yeah. I really am in line with Andrew on this sense is like, there's a real economic divide in America, right? And and the folks who would normally vote democratic aren't or are pausing 
because the Democratic Party is not meeting their needs. They're, 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 they're hurting for jobs and they're hurting for income. And There's we a, are very unique. You know, you and I in New York and whatever are, yeah. are different part of this country where others are barely able to just put food on the table. And so yeah. they were looking for the Democratic Party to have something on their platform to appeal for them, but there's nothing to be found. And so you go to Trump with these fake promises and platitudes, yeah. and then it sounds seductive, right? And so that was the thing that was going on, in my opinion, you know, in, a, in, in, in summary. Um, there is, I think that's part of it. Yeah. I think that's that's part of it. I think if you, um, but I think there is still a huge uh, swath of, I don't know, people who um, are polarized on the on the political uh, landscape, and they they don't. I don't think they necessarily equate uh, the politics with economics. And I think I think that's what needs to happen. Um, sure. Well, yeah. Well, because yeah, because I think the politics is a veneer that um, that have been sort of painted, and um, and people sort of bought into that. I'm not sure if I'm explaining this. Well, when you say politics, what do you mean by that? Are you talking about the, the, the like elections or are you talking about people's political viewpoints? Because uh, they're different, you know? Uh, no, not necessarily elections. Political viewpoints, I, I, I would actually say political camps. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I just feel still that a lot largely Americans are single issue voters still, you know, they, it's, just like, it's just about guns for me. And that is exactly how I'm going to vote across all my interest lines. You know, there's a lot of people in finance in New York who yeah. are just about like taxes and are fine with putting up with a racist, sexist, you know, misogynistic person, you know, uh, yeah. even, you know, and, and it's complicated. That's why I say like politics and who you click the button or whatever for to elect or say publicly or privately who you're for is very complicated. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think you may be right on that on that front. Um, I think, yeah, there are, um, yeah, I think overwhelmingly people are single vote, single issue voters. Um, like a lot of people are going to vote for Angie because he's Asian, because they're Asian. It's, it's that, that's it. That's fine. I mean, even though he might be too like conservative on a certain economic policy for them, yeah. they're okay with it, right? And so you know, I have a lot of pressure too. I'm just kind of like, well, you, of course you're supported Andrew because, you know, he's your friend, you're Asian. And I'm like, well, technically I'm not supposed to do that. Right. Cause yeah. I don't want others doing that either. I don't want yeah. you just voting for someone because they're black or Latino. I want yeah. you to vote because they're the right person. So. Yeah. But unfortunately that's how people vote. And, and sure. that's, that's also, I think the problem with diversity and how diversity is implemented, how diversity is sort of, you know, um, just because you have a minority representative in Congress doesn't necessarily mean they will, um, you know, act in the best interest of that minority group. That's not their task either. They're, right. they're, they're, they're voted to represent their constituents. And if their constituency isn't that, in theory, they're not doing their job. I mean, that's where, that's the struggle with all electeds is do I vote my conscience? Do I vote my constituents, right? So. But, but that's not how people vote. Um, I think there were, there were some surveys done where people, was it in New York or I forget where, mm -hmm. um, they polled the voters and um, it, 
the votes basically fall fell along racial lines. So makes sense. Okay. Yeah, which I don't. Yeah, I mean, I think I mean I'm not surprised by it, but at the same time, like I don't like the fact that that's you know because people are not then voting on policy. They're not voting on, you know, just, well, okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, let me let me take a step back actually. So when Andrew Yang first ran, uh, uh, ran for uh, the presidential okay. candidacy, mm-hmm. um, I liked him based on the several interviews I saw of him, mm-hmm. uh, based on, you know, interviews that I saw uh, of, uh, a lot of other candidates mm-hmm. and uh, com- comparatively like I think I like what he has to say I like the way he thinks I think okay. he's uh, practical he tries to solve problems um, and he's not political right he you know what well, yeah I mean but, but at the same from, yeah he's not his, he's, he's not, not from, a career politician right exactly um, so but at the same time like I didn't want to publicly uh, uh, say that I like him as a candidate because I didn't want people to think that I like him just because he's Asian. Yeah. Uh, but that's not well, the reason well, why. Welcome to Hollywood. Yeah. What happens all the time? <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, you know, Asians in Hollywood, I know this firsthand, can't vouch for the Asian position because it'll seem like they're just doing it because they're Asian and it discredit them as an objective sort of thought, you know, like opinion on a particular script or whatever, you know? Um, I mean, and, but that's the, that's the challenge all minority groups face because majority groups don't have to worry about that as much because. But, yeah, yeah. but I feel like Asians do that to themselves more than other minority groups. I mean, it depends on the topic we're talking about. I mean, yeah. some, you know, when we're talking about like, you know, specialized high school admissions or stipends in high school, well, then Asians have the majority opinion, right? You go to Japan and then Asians are majority versus not, right? And so you can't talk about like white people oppressing Asians in Japan. It doesn't make any sense, right? No, yeah. Um, you know, uh, so it's contextual. You, you, you got to really take it case by case. Um, and in my opinion, look at it through who has power and privilege in the given situation and who doesn't, you know, who, who has the wind in their face running the sprint and who has the wind to their back, you know, and, and that's the invisible forces that need to be taken into account when you're dealing with diversity, equity, inclusion, and all of these more level setting type uh, challenges that are going on right now in our country. So, mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. 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 Um, when did you come to New York? So you grew up in California. Yeah. Yeah, so a little bit of background. I again, I, I was born and raised in Los Angeles, California, in that area called Sawtelle, Japantown. Now, um, uh, I again just all public education. I've never been a private college or institution. Uh, went to LA Public Schools, which is the second largest public school district in the country. Went to UCLA um, public institution, and then did uh, Coro. Did the fellows program in Los Angeles. Uh, worked for a few years, two or three years. Uh, I, I was a biochem undergraduate, so I was literally that good yeah. Asian kid tracked toward medicine, right? Like, okay. but I was all I was doing on campus was just student government and Asian American issues. Like, you know, I, I was lucky enough to 
hang around the, it's called Campbell Hall, which is which housed Asian American studies for UCLA. And I was, I was very much uh, connected with a lot of folks there, including Don Nakanishi, who was one of the leaders of Asian American studies movement in, in, the, in college, in colleges across the country. Um, and a lot of great folks out there. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I decided to do Coro because mostly it was a hedge on not figuring, knowing what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. um, it exposed me to all these different uh, industries. And I decided to support the campaign of a Japanese American guy running for uh, a state assembly uh, after college, uh, after Coro. And uh, he won. But I ended up joining a staff of a Jewish guy in my, more toward where I lived who became the speaker of the assembly for California. And, so you uh, worked on that candidate's campaign. So you were part of that campaign, worked on- I was okay. part of the campaign, yep. Yeah. And uh, his, his primary and general election. I did the primary during Coro and I did the general election after. Uh, I worked in politics, got an incredible insight into how that world works in California. It's kind mm -hmm. of close to national because it's so big how, how national politics work. And then uh, I got disillusioned by the whole system and wanted to just figure out what I want to do. So I left the country for six months and went to South America. Oh yeah. Part of it was just to leave, but part of it was also to discover my roots. Um, Japanese, the Japanese diaspora currently exists in three major countries uh, in, in numbers. Uh, the number one is Brazil. Yeah. There are more Nikkei in Brazil. Nikkei is a term for Japanese of origin, Japanese living abroad. Uh, they're in Brazil, and it's closely behind that is the U.S. And then after that, it's like Peru. Uh, so mm -hmm. there was Brazil and Peru in there. And so I actually ended up befriending a Japanese Brazilian family. It was so cool. Like they were like family, but they didn't. We, they, they, we kind of communicated in broken Japanese, but mostly it was like you know they were speaking Portuguese and I was speaking English. And um, and then in Peru, the same thing. I, I fortunately was able to meet up with a community of people. I was connected to them ahead of time by people in LA and um, got to know them. And so it was like really incredibly enriching to see different diasporas play out and how different or similar we are uh, around the globe, right? And then I came back and getting to your question of when did I move to New York? Um, <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, I taught in public schools for a year. Because I, 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 I knew I wanted to do something in education, but I realized mm -hmm. public school teaching was not, not it at all. So I was dating someone who was finishing law school on the East Coast and had a job, a law firm offer in the, for a firm in New York and decided to move. I just moved. I just went over there. Ah, okay. Yeah, so I so came you... in September 2000, August 2002. August 2002. Um, what, what about uh, the education field did you not like? What was it about it that you decided this is not for me? Well, being a teacher in a public school is not for me. It, 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 it's all the challenges that any public school teacher talked about because I, I, I pretty much was committed to impact and, and efficient impact and what I was able to teach and the, you know, how it was received. Public schools often, at least in LA at the time, you know, we had 35 kids per class. We had six rounds, six periods. Uh, horrible like infrastructure to support discipline any issues uh i was pretty much just that was the hardest job to this day i've ever had period yeah period yeah. It's, it's i would leave school at 3 p.m go right to a movie theater and sit there and zone out like my my like the, the greatest day for me was friday yeah. afternoon the worst time was sunday afternoon it was so stressful you know it was absolutely 
you know, I, and you know, our all teachers have different particular experiences. I actually taught in the middle school I attended. That was crazy. My I was peers with my teachers for when I was in middle school. So it was like a total like behind the curtain experience. And you, you taught know, middle school. Of, you taught middle, taught school? middle school. Yeah, Eighth middle school history. is the toughest period, yep. I think. Yeah. Oh yeah. I know that. I knew that too. Okay. But they're also most in need of, of teachers. Yes. Right? So yes. so you know, you're at that point where they're not young so that you're not parenting them like in elementary school you're not single you're not multi-subject meaning you have the same kids through multiple subjects you have people you have a lot of kids through different subjects yeah. yeah so and then they're not in high school where like school starts mattering you know they start mattering mattering then and they take surf seriously whereas in the middle school it's just like this middle area where they're like eh, whatever they, their hormones are raging yeah <laughs> kind of in the you know it, oh it's so much so um, I think even you know, as a, even as a student, middle school is like the toughest period in your life. Well, yeah. it's definitely tough as a teacher. Yeah. And so I was I started on an emergency credential as a substitute, but literally a week later, a a teacher had a chair thrown at her face and was out oh. for the year, and I was asked to take over a class. So I took over that class um, for for a year, a uh, one cycle, and I, I man, like I I, I if. I had a front row seat in all the challenges of the country socially, because that's where all the social problems of the country showed up first in schools, public mm -hmm. schools. And then, um, you know, just the challenges that existed within the LA Unified School District that were just, I don't know how you surmount them. I mean, we just had no, I could not manage the, the 35 kids at once, particularly the ones who, after they installed the soda machine in our lunch area and after lunch, oh my gosh, it's like <laughs> insane, right? Um, and then, uh, you know, having the support network of teachers who really just doing it out of their own goodwill. Like if I couldn't discipline a kid, I sent them over to a more senior teacher. And uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm even sanitizing that. Like it, it was so hard and yeah. it was, it felt like it felt defeating, you know, um, they, they, they had this teachers union meeting where I went to one time, uh, and then they were giving out these swag, you know, like rulers or pens or something. And I looked at a ruler that was from the, you know, UTLA, it was called the United Teachers of LA. And the ruler, I was struck. It said, teachers are, are professionals too. And I'm like, why do I have to be reminded I'm a professional? Am I like, it's weird. You know what I mean? It's like, am I not a professional? I don't understand why you have to be validated that you're a professional. In this in this context, it, it, it's kind of like when I landed in uh, Quito, Ecuador one night, and I went. I would just it was the middle of the night. Got off the bus, and then there's this huge banner on the central square that says "Quito es seguro." Quito is safe, <laughs> and I'm just like, <laughs> why do we, I need an affirmation that's safe here? Oh crap! I gotta run, right? I gotta, you know. So you know, you don't you don't need that in Tribeca. Tribeca is not for murderers. You don't put that there. So that, you know, it's just that, it's, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wonder. I wonder though if it was an affirmation to kind of encourage uh, teachers to stay in their profession. Kind of like reminding them, hey, this is a noble profession. Like you know, stick it out, kind of thing, as opposed to like, what? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't I don't know, know what yeah. it was. I just know you feel defeated, overwhelmed. Yeah. You feel like second-class citizens. Uh, you know, the life of a teacher is different because I was like a. I was like a middle 20 late 20 year old you know so mm -hmm. single guy you can't hang out with your friends on weekdays you can't have that drink you're so tired you're preparing for the next day mentally yeah. and in actuality on on tests and, and homework because every 
you're just on stage, you're performing and you have to have a tight routine and that because every day they're challenging you. They're trying to challenge you, yeah. especially in middle school and you have to be on guard. So you're on for, from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. all yeah. the time. Maybe you take a little mental break at lunch. Yeah. Maybe you're lucky to have an off period. Maybe you have the, the honors kids one yeah. period, which is a lot easier. And that's it. And then you're just back on this routine, which is so stressful. Um, it just wasn't for me. I mean, I, I think for others it was, and it's probably, I could have gotten better at it if I stayed it longer, but that's not how I wanted to educate and, and teach. And so Coro, the fellows program became perfect. Manageable class size, people already primed to learn. You have this blend of real uh, uh, real world with academic-y kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. It was like, the, I found my classroom and that's why I stayed and directed the fellows program for seven years. Mm. So yeah, so when you came to New York, you joined Coro and you uh, you you managed. Uh, not initially, a year and a half, right. I had a transition job. I ran an AmeriCorps program. Uh, oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and and then I moved on to Coro because that was more of a transition job. I got that job a month after I got here, yeah. And I was just trying to feel out New York. I just wanted to kind of have a you know earn income, and yeah. you know, I was living with my then girlfriend, so it was, I had some buffer right and financing. But um, yeah, it was it was just I was so thrilled to be in New York City. It was so New York, LA was just like my whole life. I I just needed a change. Yeah. Um, and I got it. I mean, that talk about one of the most, you know, intense cities there is in the world, uh, certainly in the US. And uh, I was thrown in it at, you know, my late twenties, right? The week of before 9-11, right? And so that was also that- Wow, really? Yeah. The week before 9-11 anniversary, sorry. Before 9-11 oh, okay. anniversary, yeah. Um, I did experience the blackout of 2003, but that's not 9-11. That was actually pretty crazy too, so. That was crazy too, yeah. 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 But you know what, actually, um, I think the 2003 blackout, um, because of 9/11, yeah, and what New Yorkers went through with 9/11 and the solidarity oh. that they felt, blackout was like nothing. So like there were no oh. riots, no looting, nothing. No. People were having Barbecues. block parties. I know. Oh, yeah. Left Bonfires. and right. Marty Markowitz was on the bridge. I was in Union Square. Well, actually, I started in uh, 36th and 8th, or my and then I thought the power went out on my computer. And then I realized the power was out in my office. And then I realized the power was out in the building because we walked down. And then I walked to Union Square just to walk and noticed, oh, the power's out everywhere. Yeah. Because there's, there's no cell phone like you know the way it is now. You, you can't just you can't find out, right? Really. Yeah. And then I, I realized, okay, I'll just wait till the power comes back on. I'll sit here. So it was like two, three, four, five. And then it was like, okay, I gotta start walking because it's getting dark. Yeah. So I walked from Union Square across the Brooklyn Bridge back home to where I live in, in Prospect Heights. And on the bridge, in the middle of the bridge, is Marty Markowitz going, welcome home, you're back, <laughs> welcome home. He's just standing there and it's just like, what a jokester. <laughs> well, he's a character. Great. Yeah. It was great. That was great. It was yeah. just like, I could see why you got elected and reelected. You know, that was a great move. You saw on the bridge, welcoming yeah. back Brooklyners, you know, so. But anyway. yeah, but that's, yeah, it, it's so Marty Markowitz to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah, he he's he's not in politics anymore. Is he still around? Did he pass? I okay, I don't know. I don't yeah, know. Don't know. but uh, yeah, that's uh, yeah. uh. So I had uh at the time of the blackout, I was on a, I was um at a workshop or or something like I was actually on a panel, a speaker panel. I was oh. one of the panelists, and uh, and it had just ended as the blackout hit, oh. and so uh, the people 
the host, uh, mm. the company that was hosting the event, they came over to us and they said, hey, it's a blackout. We all have to walk down. So we walked down. And I think I was in the Wall Street area at the time. Mm. And I had just enough battery life on my cell phone to call oh. my brother, oh. um, you know, to figure out like how I'm going to get home. And yeah. so, yeah, we were able to actually I was in Union Square area by that time. And so mm -hmm. he and I, we met up. But um, but yeah, that was it was interesting. Yeah, that was the yeah. closest I had to 9-11. I mean, 9-11, yeah. I was in L.A., but that was crazy, right? Oh, I mean, it was yeah. just, I mean, you were in New York, right? I was in New York. I, yeah, I grew up in New York. Yeah, actually, uh, Deutsche Bank. No, no, no. This is before Deutsche Bank. This is bank. No, this is this is Deutsche Bank. So mm -hmm. Deutsche Bank uh, bought Bankers Trust back in 99. Mm -hmm. And um, and so the Bankers Trust building was across the street from the Southern Tower. Oh, and wow. so, yeah, so Deutsche Bank, after they bought Bankers Trust, they took over that building. And so I was actually working there. Um, yeah, but I was running late. Oh, <laughs> so I really? didn't. Act so I didn't actually make it to the building. I was stuck in Midtown because by the time I got to uh, Times Square, yeah, where I would have to change trains, the train shut down. And so I couldn't. You make got it. lucky then. I got lucky. Um, wow. Yeah. And later I heard reports that everyone in that building made it out alive except okay. for one um, security guard. Yeah. That's crazy. No, I mean, I... I, I, I was just done comfortably in Los Angeles and my grandmother, I was actually living with her at the time. And she goes, Eddie, I think something happened in New York. I, I literally was like, oh yeah, I'm still going. oh my God, it's like, it's like crazy, right? Um, but, you know, I, you know, my first time I came to New York was during my fellows program. It was because the National Alumni Organization was inviting a representative from every Coral Center, five uh -huh. of them, to come to New York to be in, on the board for a year. And so I got that honor and it was my first trip to New York and obviously I was overwhelmed by it and our our meeting was in I think it was the 96th floor of the North Tower uh -huh. uh, so you know that was in 19 well it was 98 I think but mm -hmm. um I was in the tower I was like you know maybe you've been there a ton of times but I was like this is the biggest freaking building I've ever seen in my life it's like it's like wide as a, a football stadium, you know? I was like, the wide, the width of it, the girth of the towers is so ridiculous. And I remember seeing the view from uh, about, uh, Brooklyn Heights and it was like, it was like these two rods pulling up and then these like little short grass beneath it, the rest of the buildings now, you yes. know? And now those are the tall buildings, right? But it was so massive. And it's just the thing. And so when I was in LA seeing the plane go through it, you know, wing to wing, it didn't even traverse it. I went like I remember how big those were, like yeah. I can't even. Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine what was going on. It's crazy. So yeah, um, yeah. I I didn't know what was going on um, because I was on the street trying to get downtown, and so train shut down. All the buses that passed, they were packed. Everyone was they spilled out onto the street, and so I was like I and. The cell phones didn't work, pay phones didn't work, nothing worked. So there was no way for me to contact anyone. Right. So I, one of my sisters happened to uh, work in Midtown at the time, about like maybe 10 or 12 blocks north of 42nd Street. So I decided, okay, you know what, I'm going to walk over to her office and, you know, see if I could maybe use their phone or something. <laughs> 
that's when I found out what happened. Oh wow! Yeah, because when see I, smoke, you couldn't see smoke if you looked in the air. Uh, no, you couldn't. Oh wow! Because yeah, it was kind of blowing in Brooklyn, I think. So maybe you didn't. Yeah, see. forty between Forty Second Street and Wall Street, it's a huge, it's a huge um, uh, distance, and and also you have all those buildings. I didn't, I didn't see I anything. Thought, I thought. No, I couldn't have seen it. I, I moved after the trade centers were there, but I thought you could look down like one of the avenues, like eighth or seventh, and see downtown buildings. But I don't know, maybe. Um, I mean, possibly, but you know, right. I yeah, I mean, well, you did. I I didn't think to look because like I didn't know what was, and they weren't saying anything. The subways weren't saying anything at first. Yeah, they people, were saying people didn't know. Probably. They didn't know. Yeah, yeah. Okay. we didn't. Yeah. They didn't know. They didn't know what to say uh and um so yeah everyone spilled out onto the street and then uh and then but on my way to my sister's office i stopped um i saw a bunch of uh construction workers just hanging around at a construction site listening to the radio so i felt like okay something's going on so let me just kind of like you know eavesdrop on the radio what's what's yeah. happening and they were t talking about the pentagon so oh. this is so by that time the Pentagon got hit. Oh. So they were talking about the Pentagon. So I had no idea like anything was going on in New York. And so crazy. Yeah, I went to my sister's office and I asked for her and they said everyone's in the conference room. And I'm like, okay. So I go to the conference room and they had the TV on. And that's when I saw they they kept looping the uh the planes hitting the towers. Well that that, you know as a speaking of as an ancestry and historian person because i often thought about what were the biggest events of all my you know relatives yeah um and and the one that i would have wanted to have been around or been alive to experience and the one i always go back to is i wish i was there to see the landing on the moon that was like crazy mm. it was probably with a seminal event of uh some people's lives you know for my my family mostly it's been world war ii something around world war ii uh, yeah you know obviously but 9-11 uh, is it for, for me, at least. I mean, I can't think of anything more seismic than that. I mean, certainly even for the world, right? It changed the rules of the world. Uh, it did. So. Not, not necessarily for the better. No, that's true. But yeah. I will tell you one thing. I don't recall there ever being an airplane hijacking since 9-11 because there's no chance people would ever allow a plane to be hijacked anymore. They would just raid the cockpit and... It's because they're assuming they're going to die anyways, as opposed to if we just stay calm yeah. and relax, we're going to be safe. Because, you know, in the in the late 70s, early 80s, when all the hijackings were happening around, yeah. you know, yeah. like, yeah, I was actually freaked out usually on airlines. Like, I hope we don't get hijacked. And then it became a rule like you're you're, you're, you're just assume you're going to be used in a 9-11 capacity. So just go after the, the hijackers, yeah. you know. Uh, yeah, uh, I think. Yeah. In that sense, I think. Yeah, because uh, I think previous hijacks were about ransom right but so was that sort of wasn't it i, I don't know like 9 11 you don't know exactly why what were the rules that were going on you just know it was happening and i'm pretty sure that will never happen again on any commercial aircraft there's just no chance you're just going to sit there and let it happen um yeah. i mean this is and that you know side note um not that that's a good thing. You don't want any hijacking ever to happen. But like weirdly, I, I thought I don't think there's ever been one. I mean, there've been crashes, but uh, not specific ones where there was you know ransom demands or anything like that that happened. Um, yeah, like Con Air won't happen. That movie won't happen anymore. No, that um, won't happen. Yeah. <laughs> and this concludes part one of this episode. 
please return to the podcast episode listing for part two.